Mark. Mark chapter 12 is where we are going to be. We are here again celebrating our third Passion Week together as a church. Uh, The Passion Week, the most important week in the life of Jesus Christ, the most important week in our lives as believers, the most important week in all of human history. Everything changed because of this week. And the Passion Week is an eight-day week, praise the Lord. It's Sunday to Sunday. It's Triumphal Entry Palm Sunday today until Easter Sunday. So it's an eight-day week. Where does it get its name? Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 3 is where it gets its name. The New American Standard says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Speaking of Jesus... The King James Version says, to whom he also showed himself alive after his passion. So it's a week of suffering. That's where we get the name Passion Week, the week of suffering. This is an utterly important week. Um, We need to get to know the Passion Week. One of the reasons why I would encourage you, just biblically, that you need to know the Passion Week, is over 40% of the Gospels spend their time on the Passion Week. So you have Jesus, around 33 years old, And they spend a couple paragraphs uh, on his birth, a a couple lines uh, on his um, adolescence, and then a a good amount on three years of public ministry, three and a half years of public ministry. But over 40% of each of the Gospels spends its time on one week of our Savior's life. One week. So almost half of every Gospel just talks about this one week. It's, it's the most important week of human history. So we need to get to know it. We need to get to know it. This morning, what I want to do is, is get to know the Passion Week a little bit better. I just want to hold it up and look at it from different angles. Jesus came into the temple on Palm Sunday, triumphal entry into the temple, palm branches waving, coats in the, in the road. We talked about a bunch of this last year. Then Jesus rode back out. So he rode into Jerusalem. He went into the temple. He looked around. He left, went back to Bethany, came in on Monday, saw the fig tree, cursed the fig tree, uh, went into the temple, cleansed the temple for the second time of his ministry, earthly ministry, came back out. Uh, he, He held control over the temple. He started teaching, and then he goes back to Bethany Monday night. Tuesday, he comes in again with his disciples. They ask what happened to the fig tree. He shares the lesson of the cursed fig tree, now withered. He goes back into the temple that he has now taken over, and he commands every single person on the Temple Mount to do what he wants them to do. Teaches again. Leaves on Tuesday evening. And as he's walking out, he describes uh, the Olivet Discourse. He describes what's going to happen. Uh, one of the disciples uh, says, look at the temple. It's so beautiful. It's so magnificent. We're going to take it over. We're gonna, you're doing that already, and we're going to rule and reign. And he says, actually, not one of the stones is going to stand upon itself. Um, he's speaking about what's going to happen to the temple and what's going to happen ultimately in the end times. He leaves, goes to Bethany Tuesday night, spends the night there. Wednesday is a silent day. We know that Judas was in um, the city in Jerusalem uh, preparing for the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, and the the guards to come get uh, Jesus. He just didn't know where they were going to be able to get him. He didn't know where Passover was going to be held because Jesus was secretly um, figuring out how he could make the Passover such that it was secret to Judas, but the disciples knew. That all happened on Wednesday. Thursday, he comes in in the morning. 
They celebrate Passover after Peter and John follow the man with the pitcher on his, on his head and goes to the upper room. They celebrate the Passover in the upper room together. Um, and before they take communion, before Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he tells Judas to leave. He's not a part of the new covenant community. So Judas, leave, do what you have come to do. So he goes, he, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Um, then they leave. They go to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays three times. Judas, meanwhile, had gone back to where the Passover had been taken, and Jesus was not there. He had left to the garden. So Judas takes all of the guards to the garden. He knows that's probably where Jesus would be hanging out, so I'm going to go there. Jesus prays three times that the cup could pass from him. Gets up, betrayed by Judas in the middle of the night on Thursday, arrested, taken to three Jewish trials on Friday morning, three, Jew- three Roman trials Friday morning. And then he is beaten severely. He is condemned to die by crucifixion. He's nailed to a cross at nine in the morning on Friday. Uh, from nine to noon, the sky is light. People are speaking and sarcastically, rudely jeering and mocking. And then at noon, everything goes black. The wrath of God is poured out upon Jesus. Jesus is the only one that starts talking in those moments, cries out, ends up dying at three, gives up his spirit. Nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down. His body is buried before sundown. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, his body is in the tomb. Sunday morning, he raises from the dead. Um, That is just a brief overview of the Passion Week. And we could spend... So much time on every single portion. The gospel writers do. So for our time this morning, I just want to divide it into two sections. You could see it in your bulletin. I want to look at the sovereignty of Jesus, the sovereignty of the Lamb. And I want to look at the slaughter of the Lamb. The triumphal entry is just getting us to the Lamb being slaughtered. So I want us to get there, but I want us to look first at the sovereignty of the Lamb. And then we will look at the slaughter of the Lamb. Number one, the sovereignty of the Lamb. Last year, we looked at just one aspect of the sovereignty of Jesus, that he planned the triumphal entry. He made it happen. He was not surprised by all of the people that were there uh, waiting for him to crest over the Mount of Olives and come down into Jerusalem. They were there waiting because Jesus got them to wait there. His sovereignty in orchestrating every single aspect. And you can go to any event in the Passion Week and see that Jesus is making it happen. He makes it happen. He gets to the place where he gets himself killed Friday morning. He knew that he had to be killed Friday morning by being crucified according to the prophecy of the scripture. So he got himself there. He easily could have died Monday, easily could have died Tuesday, easily could have died Wednesday and could have been betrayed Thursday night in the upper room. But he makes it such that he gets himself killed on Friday. No one takes his life from him. John 10 says he lays it down. So he is sovereign in all things. We could go to the fact that he takes control of the temple and sovereignly ordains. As he owns the temple on Monday and Tuesday, he tells, the gospel writers tell us that he tells people where to walk and where not to walk. Even if you're carrying a pitcher across the temple, he says, you're not allowed to do that. Leave. He owns the temple. And when you have millions of Jews there for the Passover, that's an enormous feat to own and control the temple. We could go to Thursday night at midnight when he's taken into the garden. Um, John chapter 18, we'll get to this in our study in John. 
When the guards come to him and he asks them, he initiates with them, who do you seek? Protecting his disciples. And they say, we seek Jesus, the Nazarene. And he says, I am he. And when he says those words, they fall down like they're struck by lightning. They're the ones who have armor and, and weapons. And they're the ones that are terrified. And Jesus says to Peter, we could go to Peter um, cutting off Malchus's ear. We could go to that where, where Jesus sovereignly heals Malchus and says to Peter and to the rest of the disciples and to the guards as well, do you not know that if this were my kingdom, if my kingdom were here and now, I could call legions of angels and wipe you out in an instant. I'm in control of it all. We could go to a bunch of places, but where I want to go is in Mark chapter 12. I want to go to Tuesday of the Passion Week. He has taken over the temple. He already cleansed it on Monday. He has taken over the temple. He's teaching. And if you go back to chapter 11, verse 27, uh, the scribes, the priests, the chief priests, the elders are coming to him and they're saying, by what authority, verse 28, are you doing all of these things? Cleansing the temple, telling people what to do. That's our job. We are in control of the temple. Who gave you authority to do these things? And what I want you to see this morning is the sovereignty of Jesus in the way that he communicates and speaks and teaches. He owns these people. These are the uh, controllers of the law, professionals in the word of God, and he owns them. He owns them in that setting by saying, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. Whose authority was John the Baptist doing everything under? Was it under uh, man or under God's? And he pins them. They say, we can't, we can't answer that. We know that the crowds are for Jesus, and they believe that he, Jesus, and John the Baptist were both sent by God, so we can't say anything here. They're going to riot. That leads us to Tuesday here, Tuesday afternoon, where Jesus is being met by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, and all of the elders, and they're trying to pin him, and ultimately what they're trying to do is get the crowds to hate him. They want Jesus dead. They've wanted him dead for a long time. And they want him dead, but they know if we were to kill him right now, the crowds would kill us. The crowds love him. So what do we need to do? We need to turn the crowds to hate him and love us. That's their whole goal. So they start asking all of these questions. And they're asking really good questions. Let's go to the first question that they ask. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Drop down to verse 13. Some of the Pharisees and Herodians are sent to Jesus in order to trap him. In a statement. Again, they're trying to trap him so that he looks like a fool in front of the crowds, and then the crowds will say, We're not going to follow him anymore. And then when the Pharisees say, Well, should we kill him? They'll go, Yeah, we don't care about him. Go ahead. So they send him, uh, they send Pharisees to him. Verse 14, they came and they said to him, This is their question. They're trying to trap him. And this, we don't give the Pharisees a lot of credit. This is a really good question. Teacher, we know that you are truthful. They don't believe that. This is dishonest. You defer to no one. You are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. Now, again, they don't believe that. The crowds believe that. And so they're trying to say, we've got an honest question for you, don't we, crowds? We have an honest question for you. What's their question? Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Again, this is a very dishonest question because they're just trying to trap him. But as far as dishonest questions go, this is a really good one. 
What are they trying to do? They're trying to get the crowds on their side and turn against Jesus. Who did the crowds think the Messiah was going to be? A political ruler. I'm going to come in. I'm going to crush Rome. The crowds hate Rome. Political oppression. They don't want Rome over them. I think the majority of the crowds are actually believing on Palm Sunday that here comes Jesus, our victor, Messiah, to conquer Rome. So this is a well-crafted question because, as the Pharisees say, basically, are you going to serve and submit Rome, submit to Rome? The crowds are going to boo Rome. They're going to spit when they hear the name of Rome, when they hear the name of Caesar. So the Pharisees know that Jesus is going to have to say, well, you have to submit. They know that. And so they're thinking, when he says, well, we have to pay the tax, that the crowds are going to go, boo, we don't like you. We don't pay to Caesar. And the, crowds, the Pharisees say, see, crowds, we told you, don't follow him. And this will be just the beginning. And then they'll ask more questions. They'll confuse Jesus. They'll confound him. But instead, the opposite happens because of Jesus' sovereign understanding. Verse 15. But he knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Why are you testing me? Full control, never flustered. Ever share the gospel with somebody and they ask you a question that's just a downright amazing question that you go, I don't know how to answer that. And you get flustered. You, you start talking a little bit faster and oh, I don't know what to do and palms get sweaty. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. He says, why are you testing me? First question. I'm going to ask you a question. Why are you testing me? And then he says, bring me a denarius to look at. So they bring one. He says to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus said to them, render to Caesar's. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. And they all were amazed at him. The Pharisees are amazed because their well-set and well-baited trap did not work. In fact, what just happened? Remember, what are they trying to do? They're trying to turn the crowds to hate Jesus so that when they say, let's kill him, the crowds say, yes, let's kill him. They can't do that now because the crowds love him. So many times in the Gospels, you see, for fear of the crowds. They want Jesus dead. They want to kill him. But for fear of the crowds, they never do. So they think, well, we've got to sway the crowds. And as they set a trap and bait the trap, And say, here, Jesus, what about this? What ends up happening is they step in it themselves. And now the crowds, as they are amazed at Jesus' teaching, and they've booed the fact that we should pay taxes to Caesar, when Jesus answers very, very well, honestly, they say, wow, he's right. And instead of pulling the crowds to their side, they lose even more of the crowds. The next question is just... Downright hysterical. This is an absurd question. Verse 18. Some Sadducees, and the parenthetical statement here is huge, who say that there is no resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. But they come to Jesus and they question him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. It was an Old Testament law um, Verse 20. So let's give you a hypothetical, Jesus. This is, by the way, what rabbis love to do. They love to just, hypothetically, what would you do in this situation? What would happen in this case? There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died, leaving no children. 
The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Then, last of all, the woman died also. So I don't know what this woman's doing. Poisoning food, maybe. Um, She's a terrible cook, I'm guessing. This is a true uh, black widow. Um, She's devouring her husbands, and then she dies also. Verse 23, this is not an honest question, because they say, in the resurrection which they don't believe about. They don't believe in that. When they rise again, we don't believe that. Which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Who's she going to be married to? So Jesus, again, knowing they don't even believe in the resurrection. They don't even believe in the afterlife that someone can live again. Jesus says, verse 24, to answer their specific question, is this not the reason you're mistaken? You don't even understand the scriptures or the power of God. Wow. You're going to come toe-to-toe with me, and I'm going to call you out. You don't even know the, the word of God. You don't know the law. These are experts in the law, and he says you don't know. He says this, verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, when they rise, not if, you're wrong, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. So he answers their question in one statement. You're wrong. Nobody's married in heaven. We are all married as Christ's bride to Jesus. We are not married to one another. He says, you're wrong. Let me answer your question. And then he says, but I'm not done with you. Regarding the fact that the dead rise again. So it's a fact. It's true. And you're wrong about your understanding, Sadducees. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And you are greatly mistaken. If I were to ask you, how can you prove biblically that there is an afterlife? that there is a resurrection from the dead, that we will be raised again after we die. I don't think the first place that you would think of going is the burning bush. You don't, oh, I know exactly where I can go. Burning bush, that proves it. That's where Jesus goes. Exodus uh, chapter 3, verse 6, he goes right there to quote the law. And again, in his amazing, sovereign, wise skills as a teacher, No one spoke like this man. Remember, we we talked last week in John chapter 7. No one spoke like this man. What I love about this is he proves the afterlife with one word, and it's the tense of that word. He proves that we, once we die, something happens after. We live on. Because he says, God spoke saying, I am the God of Abraham. Not I was. Abraham was mine. Now he's dead. So no more. So I was his God, but I'm not his God anymore because he's dead. Jesus proves the resurrection by the tense of a verb. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and I am the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. I love that. That just reminds me that I need to be careful as a reader and a student of the Bible because tenses of words produce theology. Tenses of words produce doctrine. Jesus knows that and he proves that. Once again, 
the crowds are confounded. Then there's an honest question in verses 28 through 34. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus honestly answers it. It's an honest question. Jesus honestly answers it. And he says, you're not far from the kingdom. That's an honest question. Drop down to the end of verse 34. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. We're done. We have been verbally beat up by your amazing answers to our incredibly stupid questions. The verbal beatdown's over. No more, please. And as they walk away, Jesus in verse 34 says, 35 says, we're not done yet. I love this. It's as if they're running away from him, and in this verbal brawl, Jesus grabs them by the collar as they're running away and says, we're not done yet. Verse 35, Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple. He teaches He continues to keep on teaching, and he doesn't let up. He is sovereign and in control just a few days before he's going to be killed. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down, and he did for you and for me. He is sovereign over all things. He continues to teach. The disciples end up asking him the question about the temple in chapter 13, and that whole chapter is about end times. What's going to happen when Christ comes again and before Christ comes again? But he's sovereign over it all. And as he teaches in his utter wisdom, he continues to light a fire under the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the chief priests, bring them all together, the Herodians, and Pilate's going to be in on this too. And he gets them all to a place where they are going to say, let's kill him. And they're going to try and find a way. And one of the reasons why they tried him at midnight uh, between Thursday and Friday is because they knew if the crowds were here, they would fight for him. He wouldn't be able to die if we did this legally with crowds able to come and testify. Jesus continues to push and push and teach and teach and get himself to a place where he's killed on Friday. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. That leads us to the slaughter of the lamb. Go to John chapter 12. I want you to see this. Some believe this happened on Tuesday, right after what we just discussed. And so chronologically, if it does fit there, it fits in this sermon. Some believe it happened on Sunday. Um, I actually believe it happened probably either Monday night uh, or Monday afternoon or Tuesday afternoon. You're familiar with this account. John chapter 12, verse 27. If If you start earlier, verse 20, there's Greeks that are going up to worship at the feast. This is why I believe this happened after Monday, after the cleansing of the temple, because they're going up to worship, but Greeks would not be able to enter certain parts of the temple because they were Gentiles. They were far off. But Jesus is going to bring them in, allow them to come in. He's controlled the temple. Remember, he said, you have made my house a house uh, of den of thieves, a den of robbers, even though it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. All nations should be here. And you've segregated it. And that's wrong. So I believe off the heels of that, he's allowing Greeks to come in. They came to Philip, verse 21, who's from Bethsaida. And they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip came and he told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So he's going to start speaking to them, and they're going to send these messages to the Greeks, and they're going to end up coming in. There's a dialogue. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will be honored. So he starts teaching. He starts telling them, tell this to the Greeks, bring the Greeks in. They will hear, they will see. But he stops. And in verse 27, his train of thought completely changes. He's spe- it's as if he's, he's speaking to Peter and he's speaking to Andrew and he's looking right at them and then all of a sudden his eyes lift. It's one of those moments where you can tell you're not here in this moment anymore. You're thinking about something else. Verse 27, what is he thinking about? He says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Shall I pray, Father, save me from this hour? The answer in the Greek text, it's, it's begging for the answer. No way. No way. I would never ask, Father, save me from this hour. The hour that my soul is troubled because of. The hour that is terrorizing me. The hour when I will be disfellowshipped by the Father. Because it's for this purpose I came. This hour is the reason that I'm here. So, Father, glorify your name. And the Father breaks protocol, splits the heavens, speaks, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The reason why I want to show you that as we lead into the slaughter of the Lamb is because the very thing that Jesus says somewhere between Sunday and Tuesday of the Passion Week, the very, the very thing that he says, I wouldn't even... Pray that prayer. He's tempted to pray that prayer, and he says, "I, I won't even do that. That very thing he does three times on Thursday night. Turn back to Mark chapter 14. At the beginning of the Passion Week, Jesus says, I am troubled, but I'm never going to ask, Father, take this hour away. It's for this hour that I came. Not that it would have been sinful for him to ask that question, but he says, I'm not even going to go there. The whole reason I'm here is for this hour. And yet, as you know, Mark chapter 14, verse 32, after the upper room, they come to a place named Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. He's distressed. He's troubled. Just as he had said in John 12, a few days before, I'm troubled in my soul. I'm deeply grieved to the point of death, verse 34. I could die right now. Remain here. Keep watch. He went a little beyond them. He fell to the ground. He can't even keep himself standing any longer. And he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. The very thing that he said... I would never even say that. I would never even pray that on John 12. He prays three times. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. See, again, it's not sinful for him to pray that. As long as, as he's praying, he says, God, your will be done. Your will be done. I'm here to do your will. Is there any other way to save these souls? If there is, let's do that now. 
Luke chapter 22 says that the father, after he prays these things, dispatches an angel to lift him up off of the ground. There was only other one, one other time in the Gospels, in the life of Jesus, where God sent angels to help Jesus. Only one other time. You know when it was. It was after a 40-day fast, being tempted by the devil. For 40 days, completely emaciated, completely malnourished. And the father says, angels, go help. What did they do? They just held him. They gave him food. They took care of him, nursed him back to health. Here, he is not dealing with a 40-day fast. He has just eaten a feast, the Passover Seder. But he still needs an angel. Why? Because of the contemplation of the cup that he's about to drink. What did this angel do? Um, We don't know. I've always wondered about the conversation that we will be able to have in heaven with this angel. Peter, James, and John were not with Jesus when he was praying these things. They were further away. They didn't hear whatever the angel said. They didn't see whatever the angel did. But this angel encouraged Jesus. Maybe quoted scripture. Maybe quoted Isaiah 53 to say, This is the hour. And you will bring many sons to glory because of what you're doing. The contemplation of what Jesus was going to have to suffer is what causes him to fall to the ground. It's what causes him to need an angel to come help. What does it take for God to conquer physical death, to raise somebody who has died to life? We've studied this a couple times in Mark. It's just... Wake up, little girl, I say get up. Or Lazarus, come forth. It's an easy thing for Jesus to conquer death physically. What does it take for God to conquer spiritual death? It's a much more severe answer. It's the cross. Jesus was slaughtered on the cross in our place, dying the death that we deserve because there was no other way to save us. There was no other way. That's why the Father gives no answer in the garden. There is no other way. What amazing grace that Jesus would say, I will take their place. It would have been amazing grace. It would have been amazing grace if the Father had said, you know what? I'm going to send my people to hell for just a moment and then bring them out. That would have been amazing grace. Just a taste of hell and then bring them out. It would have been amazing grace if the father had said, you know what, I'm going to condemn their sins and just put them in a place that's neutral. Neither here nor there. They just kind of exist for all of eternity, but nothing happens. It would have been astounding grace if God had said, you know what, I'm going to forgive your sins and bring you to heaven where you're going to serve as a slave, as an angel. But the father did none of those things. The father said, I'm going to send my son to die for you so that I can call you my son, my daughter. I'm going to adopt you into my family and give you every single privilege 
that Jesus has. How did that happen? How did God bring many sons and daughters into his family? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21, the father made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the answer to how the father turned us rebels into sons and daughters. This is the answer. And to understand this text, you have to go back to understand what is sin? What, what, what does it mean to have to be sin? What does righteousness of God mean? You can't understand this text fully until you understand how vile sin is. But you and I cannot understand how vile sin is, so we cannot understand this text fully. This text will be a mystery for us in heaven as we study and as we uh, continue to press deeper into the glories of Jesus Christ and his love for us. So many times I hear people say, um, the Father loved you so much that he took your sin and he threw it into the sea, removed it as far as the east is from the west. Maybe you've said that before. He just took your sin and threw it away, threw it into the sea. And I understand what they're saying, but that's not how God the Father removed your sin. God the Father did not take your sin and throw it into the sea. God the Father took your sin and threw it all on Jesus and then threw Jesus into the sea of his wrath. Jesus was slaughtered on the cross for us. What would that have been like for him? Verse 21 says that Jesus knew no sin. He knew no sin. When you talk about that, you think of Jesus kept the law perfectly. He perfectly obeyed. Yes, he did. But press into that even more. There isn't one second that I have ever lived or will ever live. There isn't one full, complete second that I perfectly love the Father with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's not one second where that can be done as a sinful human being. And yet for Jesus, there was not one second in his life where he wasn't doing that perfectly. He was tempted in the same ways that we are, and he never failed. There's a great illustration of this at the Shepherds Conference with Paul Washer speaking. He talked about if there's a, an Olympic lifter, if I'm up here um, with, a, with a barbell, 45-pound barbell, and there's an Olympic lifter with a 45-pound barbell, and we both put it on our back and we both start squatting. Despite what you might think, I can actually squat 45 pounds. Um, no, it doesn't look like it. So we both squat 45 pounds. We both go, that was relatively easy. And you put two 45 plates on either side. Now at 135, I can still do that. Still relatively easy. Then you put more plates on both of our bars. It's getting a little bit harder for me. (laughs) I'm sweating. So let's say we have six plates. We have a bar, 45, and Six 45-pound plates on either side. You put that, you put three on mine, and I'm down. I can't lift that. And the Olympic lifter is just easy. I can do this. 
So often we make light of the fact that Jesus was tempted in every way we are, but without fault. We just think, yeah, he, he couldn't sin, he didn't sin, it's, you know, piece of cake for him. What I love about that illustration is, in that illustration, I can at least bear some weight. Give me something, give the Olympic lifter something, and we can both handle it for a little while. And the reality of the gospel You give me one temptation and I crack, I crumble. I can't bear one temptation. But Jesus stood one temptation, two, three, a hundred thousand, four hundred thousand, a million temptations. We have cracked under one. And Jesus is bearing them all, standing tall. Not one temptation. He's holding the load, will not go down. He stood strong. Why did he do that? Because he loves you. You need a perfect record of righteousness to get to God, and you don't have it. I don't have it. And so Jesus said, I'm going to come to earth, and I'm going to get that perfect record for them. And so temptation after temptation is put upon his enormous, broad shoulders, and he stands, and he never falters. He knew no sin but he was made to be sin on our behalf. What does that mean? This is a mystery that we will be singing about forever in heaven. What does it mean that Jesus was made to be sin? We can find the answer to that at the end of the verse. We were made to become righteous, the righteousness of God. So we sinners who have never been the righteousness of God are declared to be righteous and we are treated as such. We are declared to be righteous and we are treated as such. Because of the righteousness of another given to us, we are declared to be righteous and treated as such. That's what happened, the opposite, for Jesus on the cross. He was perfectly righteous, but he was declared to be sinful And he was treated as such. He was declared to be sinful. And he was treated as that. That's why he stands, he's pinned on the cross and he says, why have you forsaken me? He had never felt what it feels like to be guilty, to be condemned. For us to be treated as sinners is not a very hard thing to comprehend because we are sinners. We are guilty. For us to be treated as sinners is an easy thing to understand because we're born sinners, we're born in iniquity, and every single day we drink down iniquity as if it were water. That's just our nature. But for Jesus, he had never known sin. He had never sinned. He had never had a sinful thought, a sinful attitude, a sinful action. Another great illustration that I just found so powerful. It it would be as if um, there was a, a precious lady in our church, godly saint, loves the Lord, um, doesn't even say anything that would be remotely considered unclean. Just precious godly saint. It would be as if she, in her love for the lost, went down 
uh, to, to downtown L.A., to the ghetto, and start sharing the gospel with prostitutes, passing out tracts. And as she's doing that, the police come, and they take all of the prostitutes, and she's thrown in there too, and they put them all into the cop cars and take them away to uh, the police house. As the prostitutes are sitting there, they're thinking, well, this has happened before. I've been in jail before. No biggie. They're probably laughing with each other, talking. Uh, this is just a typical day. But for that woman who has never even thought a sinful thought to that degree ever in her life, she's sitting in the corner at the police station, can't even look at the cops can barely breathe. I'm getting lumped in with all of these other people and what's going to happen to me? How much more so would Jesus feel that way when the woman in this illustration is still a sinner? And Jesus, perfectly clean, with no sin whatsoever, is all of a sudden in one moment becoming sin on our behalf. That is why he experienced the full wrath of God. For us. He cries out in agony on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Just, just picture yourself living in a little village and you're an eighth of a mile away from a dam a thousand feet wide, a thousand feet tall. And one morning you wake up to the biggest, most thundering crack you've ever heard. And you run out of your house and you see the dam is broke. And a wall of water is coming towards you. You can't outrun it. You can't swim through it. You are going to die. That is you and me. Standing, staring at the wall of God's wrath against our sins. And as it comes towards us, Jesus, as if it were opening the earth so that all that water would just fall into a crack and be swallowed up right in front of our face so that not even a drop of that water would land on our toes. Jesus made a way for us never to drink or feel or know one drop of the Father's wrath because he became sin for us. Or to use the language of Romans 8.32, one of my favorite verses, the Father did not spare his own Son but delivered him over for us all. He didn't spare him. Charles Spurgeon says, it looks as if it's possible that the Father loves us more than Jesus. Now Spurgeon knows what he's saying. He knows if you go that route, that's heresy, so we're not going there. But he says, we are loved so intensely by God the Father that he says, I will give up my son, whom I love. Colossians 1.13, the son of my love. I will give him up so that you can go free. When you look at the cross, you cannot doubt God's love. You can't doubt it. John uh, Flavel's book, The Mediatorial Glory of Jesus Christ. 
He has a dialogue with the Father and the Son in heaven. I just want to end our time with this dialogue. Flavel writes, The Father speaks in eternity past, and he says, My son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The son responds, O my father, such as my love to and pity for them, then rather they should perish eternally, I shall be responsible for them as their surety. I, father, will be responsible for them. So, Father, bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that after there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand thou shalt require it. I would rather choose to suffer the wrath due them than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father... Upon me be all their debt. The Father speaks, But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And Jesus says, content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, and though it impoverish all my riches and empty all of my treasures, Yet I am content to undertake it. Oh, Jesus, how do we respond? What wondrous love is this, oh, my soul, that Jesus would gladly say, I will pay every last mite so that there may be no abatements. And that we can stand now secure in the love that the Father has for us because of you, Jesus. What amazing grace. Jesus, you were slaughtered by the wrath that was due us. We will never be able to fully say thank you enough. We could never repay you. We will never think of repaying you. That's impossible. But we can absolutely glory in what you accomplished at the cross. We do that now with hearts filled with gratitude for our amazing Savior and his love for us.